following show is for comedy only and is purely for the sake of entertainment. The stories, characters, and people affiliated with this show talk about hypothetical situations for laughs. Listener discretion advised. San Quentin, what good do you think you do? Do you think I'll be different when you're through? my heart and mind and you warp my soul your stone walls turn my blood a little cold San Quentin may you rot and burn in hell alright Steve so uh, recently uh, we were on a, a group chat and we were talking about RuneScape and how dope that was and then for some reason somehow got up uh brought up that you're an addiction counselor yeah yeah it's actually kind of funny how that works you're talking about how runescape's so dope and then we get to talking about actual <laughs> dope so uh <laughs> how did you okay first of all wh uh why why do you have a do you, i mean is this your passion like why do you do it what do you do well interestingly enough so when i was an undergrad i was in kind of a similar field i suppose it, it was still with the human body but i kind of decided that after i took one class I believe it was my senior year of undergrad. I, I kind of wanted to move more towards the mental health slash substance mm -hmm. abuse therapy kind of thing. And one of the main reasons I chose addictions counseling over that was mostly because of the need that I saw for it, uh, just with how, I mean, really just terrible the opioid crisis is. I mean, really yeah. drugs in general, but the opioid was what kind of kicked me into that field. Yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, I mentioned this to you on uh, our DMs, but uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the op opioid crisis. It's um, so funny how things like um, pharmaceutical companies go in full circle. You know, you have, right. uh, you know, uh, HIV and AIDS uh, patients getting tricked into taking AZT, which is pushed by pharmaceutical companies and um, the FDA. And now, and now we have COVID that, you know, companies are pushing their products using the government on people. And uh, then, then I, I, uh, my wife's a pharma tech, so she's all about the opioid crisis. We stumble upon the show. It's called um, uh, Dope Sick, and it yep. is uh, some of the characters in it are fictional, but it tells about the overall story of how OxyContin got pushed onto the people and started the opioid crisis in Appalachia. I have a friend from there who's, yep. who says they still call them pillbillies. So, mm -hmm. um, what I mean, how far? What, what, the opioid crisis, when did that start? The 90s? Yeah, I mean, uh, opioids have always kind of been used uh, here and there just in medicine. But uh, as far as really real big problems like in Appalachia, yeah, it was around like 80s, 90s, somewhere yeah. in there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, you said that that's one of the biggest problems right now in your, your specific facility, right? Or is Correct, it yeah. substance abuse in general? Well, I mean, it's, I, I suppose it's substance use in general. Um, I, I'm not really a big fan of the, uh, the gateway drug sort of thing. Like, I, I really don't think that there's any particular drug that lends itself towards all of a sudden, like, like they used to say that about pot, right? You know, yeah, you smoke, yeah. one day you're smoking pot and then the next you're shooting up heroin. I don't really think that's necessarily how it works. That was Dare's big selling point, wasn't it? Right, exactly. And, and so, but I, I would say that. Usually, if you're if you're doing those kinds of illicit drugs, um, at least how the story gets told in, in my office, it's generally uh, you start kind of on one hard drug for one reason or another. You know, now we're kind of getting into the 
a time now where, you know, their people's parents have been on it for so long that, you know, their kids have just been around it and it's normal. So they start taking it, you know, and it's really a shame, but while you're out there kind of getting all of your use in, you're getting your drugs from, you know, whatever your dealer, um, your dealer might, you know, not sneak something in, but he might just say, Hey, you know, like take a little bit of this, you know, it'll, it'll kind of bump you back up from being so down low from the pills or whatever it is. Yeah. And then from then on, you know, things kind of wind up changing. Um, usually what I see, I work in a clinic that's strictly, uh, opioid and, and alcohol addiction. All of uh-huh. our patients have to have at least one of those. Um, but usually just from what we see, people are so uh, rooted in their addictions that they wind up having a whole host of different issues. You know, methamphetamines is, or crystal meth really is, is another really big thing in my area specifically. I, I kind of live down in the South and okay. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's opiates. Uh, of course now really it's just a ton of fentanyl, but yeah. Okay. Now, can, can we blame the pharmaceutical companies for this? Or is this another problem altogether? Like who is, how did this happen? Why, how did we get here? So way back in the day, you know, like we're talking the eighties and nineties, kind of like how you had mentioned, that's kind of where the opiate, at least if you're going to look back in retrospect, that's where it started. Um, with all Oxycontin. of these, correct. Yes. So with Oxy and, and really, yeah, that was the main thing. So we can just keep saying Oxy. Um, yeah. It was used in all of those blue collar city, you know, where, mm-hmm. so for example, like coal mines, mm-hmm. uh, we're talking in, in like Appala- in that Appalachia region where coal mining was very, very popular there. That was really the only thing you could do, at least, you know, if you were in some of those areas and yeah. they obviously they can't take days off because they need to, um, I mean, they got to provide for their families. Right. So right, right. they wind up going to these doctors and they just say, you know, like doc, you know, I'm physically, I, I just, I can't take this anymore. It's so painful. Mm-hmm. They can't take the time off of work to have a surgery, you know, say it's like your back or your knees or something like that, but the pain is just so unbearable, but you have to keep working. Yeah. Uh, and so the doctors would just provide these oxy pills to them. They would prescribe them. And, and, you know, way back then, I, I mean, they were just, they could just hand them out like candy because they yeah. could, you know, and um, realistically, I think that the doctors probably, well, I mean, now we're kind of, I guess I'm kind of ascribing intent where I really don't mean to, but I think that knowing how bad the problem is right now, I would find it very hard to believe mm-hmm. that at least, at least one person did not know, or at least, you know, did not know that those pills could be so addictive and so destructive to, uh, yeah. I mean, really a whole community. Think about how many doctors or how many, how many patients one doctor might have in a given community. Yeah. Now, if all of them are coal mining or all of them are doing hard labor jobs, that's a lot of people that need pain relief and they need it fast and they need it reliably. And Oxy was the way to go back then. And from uh, what now, I understand, these doctors were lied to. Uh, you know, um, they were told that that the uh, the pills were were safe from uh, being abused. They, they were mm-hmm. safe to use long term and they were effective at keeping pain away. It's a little bit of the same verbiage that we hear today about the vaccine, or maybe right. I'm just—I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm uh, I'm uh, making a stretch, but I mean, from what I gather, the same words, not not used in the same verbiage, but the same words were used to describe oxycotton, and that's why these doctors pushed it so much, is because mm-hmm. they were and they were also being lied to, saying like, well, if you don't, if you refuse to um, give this drug out, then you are liable to be sued you know, making threats at the doctors. 
Right. And, you know, that kind of strong arm tactic is, is kind of what you see wholesale, even right now, you know, you, you kind of made the connection between uh, some of the pharmaceuticals that we're seeing right now as a result of the coronavirus. Yeah. And I mean, there's threats left and right, you know, before they kind of had to do their own dirty work, I suppose, if you want to put it like that. But, um, but now they can kind of just through social media, through, you know, if you kind of, if, if you subscribe to the belief that the corporate media is essentially this one unified body pushing one narrative out, mm -hmm. they can just have, it winds up making it pretty clean. Yeah. Um, because you're seeing all of that kind of stuff right now, I, I think that it, it, it's all of a sudden a lot easier to understand how things worked back then too. You know, like you can kind of see, you know, I, I've thought about this dozens of times. I'm, I'm sure plenty of other people have as well, but it's like, how could we get here? How, how did not, how did nobody know that that's kind of what it seems like. It seems yeah. like nobody knew, but I mean, the problem is, is that I, I personally believe that a lot of them kind of did at least know a little bit. And if you know a little bit, then you kind of, at least put from a business together. perspective, err on the side of caution and make that, put those two things together and kind of go from there. But yeah, yeah, it's kind of mind boggling when you really sit down and think about it. So, um, so where do we go from there uh, after the Oxycontin debacle? I mean, did we learn any lessons about op opiates? Like what, what happened after that? Well, the short answer, you know, the question have we learned our lesson or have the powers that be learned their lesson? Uh, I mean, the short answer is no, but the long answer is that that was kind of around the time that now, um, at least the late 90s, early 2000s, they kind of saw a whole host of liability issues. You know, they were kind of, in a, in a way, they were strong arm tactic with the doctors, but then it kind of became a problem that couldn't really be ignored any longer. And it yeah. really started to make it started to make the rounds, you know, within the media and stuff like that. And uh, from that point on, somebody, a bunch of people wound up saying, well, somebody needs to do something about this. Somebody needs to do something about these doctors getting these poor laborers hooked on pills. And, and I don't mean poor laborers as a disparagement towards them. That was just kind of the overall running yeah, narrative. Hard working, you know, schmucks. Yeah, you know, <laughs> right. just the fucking, I'm a hard working schmuck. I have a blue collar job. I get it. Like, right. it, yeah, the honest guy, fucking over the right, honest guy, exactly. how are going to stop this? And they're relying on the guidance of their doctors, and they trust them not to lead them astray, and unbeknownst to them, they were led astray. Yeah, um, Right, and so what winds up happening is the question, somebody needs to do something about this, all of a sudden kind of turns into, now the government needs to step in and do something about it. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so the government kind of stepped in in tandem with, you know, these pharmaceutical agencies and lobbyists and things of that nature uh, to essentially put a cap on how many oxy pills or if you want to say opiate pills uh, that could be prescribed at any given time. Now, the DEA, DEA I'm, I apologize, is very serious about this. I mean, there's been stories of, um, you know, rehab clinics getting raided because doctors had previously, you know, there was some funny business going on with some controlled substances and yeah. the doctors were just handing stuff out. It puts these doctors license at risk and, and they really don't want to deviate from that because, well, I mean, if you're a doctor, you've gone to school for like what, like a quarter of your life and, and you work so hard to get to that point. And at least the good, honest working doctors, they don't want to lose their license. So mm -hmm. they really don't want to have that funny business going about. The only problem with that is that now, whereas their patients were getting these oxy pills from their doctors, which, you know, whatever your views are on, on those oxy pills, at the very least, 
you know, maybe that doctor, well, at least maybe you could say there's some plausible deniability just for the sake of them being a doctor that they didn't really mean to get those laborers hooked on pills. They didn't have any nefarious ill will or anything like that. Yeah. But, um, but now, you know, these guys are, all of these people are hooked on pills and they go to their doctor itching for some pills and the doc says, I'm sorry, but government tells me I can't, I can't do that any longer. So that winds up turning this stuff to the street. People started selling their opiate pills on the street and actually fetching quite a high price for them too. So it became a pretty good moneymaker. What should that doctor do? I mean, like put the government out of the picture, obviously. I mean, should the doctor lean into that addiction and give him these medications or, or like, or was that the good call? Is, is this one of the rare occasions that, the government got it right, uh, getting involved and getting the DEA involved. And I, you know, everyone knows I'm very anti-law enforcement in the background and, you know, especially feds. Did they get this one right? I think it kind of depends because my, my, uh, obviously my knee jerk reaction as like an anarchist libertarian is to say, no, absolutely not. They couldn't, they did not get it wrong or they did not get it right. I'm sorry. But um, it's hard to imagine they get anything right. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and especially with something like this, you know, the, the, it seems like that the two obvious answers, well, mm-hmm. potential answers, are lean into the addiction and just let them keep getting those pills instead of having to go to the street. Yeah. Or, and, I, and I'm, I'm, and I'm anti war on drugs. I, but sure. I, I don't know, Same. I don't know any way around this. I force is never right. You shouldn't. This is a hard one. This is a hard one. It is a hard one. That, uh, right. I mean, um, I had Scott Horton on. And he said the only way for an addict to get to stop to like take a good look at themselves in the mirror is for another addict to go, hey, asshole, you've made a fucking joke out of your life and everyone's turned their backs on you. Are you ready to get clean? So but I mean, fuck, man, this pill apparently was rewriting people's brain chemistry or still is maybe. And it is making them think they're going to die if they don't take it. Yeah, I mean, addiction is an incredibly... I mean, really, I can't think of anything other than to say it's just a really evil force, man. I mean, people ruin their lives over stuff like this. You know, I mean, these were people that had loving, um, you know, loving families at home and they chose, well, choose. I use the term choose lightly because I don't want to, you know, be insulting in any way towards stuff like that. Addiction's really terrible, but they kind of had to, in a way, it was either life with the pills or death otherwise. And justifiably, you know, if your brain is so melted from these drugs that you think you'll die if you don't have these pills or this substance, then it makes only rational sense that you would choose the thing that you feel is going to keep you alive, right? But the problem is, is that these pills, I mean, they absolutely wreck your bodily systems. I mean, forget about your brain, forget about, you know, your, all that other stuff. I mean, you know, think about it, you know, it has to pass through the stomach, it gets into your bloodstream, your, your liver, your kidneys have to filter all of that shit out. And that's a lot of stress on your organ systems, man. And, and, you know, a lot of these people, their life expectancy has shot considerably down just because of the use of these pills. Um, I think that um, coming back to your question about what should have been done, I think that's, you know, I, I think that that's a really hard question. And I think that my knee-jerk reaction would have been this is kind of going to sound like a conflict of interest considering I work in the field, but <laughs> to refer out to some of those, to some of those systems or, or some of those uh, other things that 
rehab clinics, uh, peer-related services. You mentioned Scott Horton's quote about how um, one of the best things and the, really the only thing that convinces an addict to really kind of get a hold of him or herself is for another addict to come in and say, what, what are you doing? You're making, a, yeah. you're making a complete fool of yourself. You're ruining your life. You need to get clean. Are you ready yet? And a lot of, a lot of what we have right now to kind of supplement, you know, because it's kind of hard as a, as a clinician to kind of sit down and, and, and in a lot of ways, it kind of seems like talking at these addicts and, you know, me being in the chair as a sober person, just shaking and wagging my finger at them and telling them that they need to get sober. Um, you have these peer-related services and the peer services are, uh, it, it's kind of like a certification program for people that have been through a, a drug rehab program before. And they get certified as a peer specialist, and that peer specialist can then take on a host or a, uh, like, a like a a whole bunch of different clients, friends, if you want to even call them that, and assist them in getting clean, allowing them to get some real world experience that is very different from the inside of my office, for example. It's a very controlled area. It's a very controlled environment. There's only so much thought exercise that you can do. Um, those peer services help them get and essentially reintegrate into the community and allow them to form uh, sober support networks, help them get jobs and really just assist them in getting back on their feet. I think that if we had, to the extent that we have peer related services and, and having what we know about addiction that we do right now, if we could port that back, obviously we would have been in a better situation, but what wound up happening is now all these people are turning to drugs on the street turning to drugs on the street leads you to other drugs, potentially, not always, but potentially. And I mean, really, you just dig yourself in this bottomless pit of substance use addiction, and, and it just winds up not working out well for pretty much anybody. I mean, it's really a terrible thing. Some of the, some of the stories that I hear uh, from some of my patients, I mean, it, it'll, it'll haunt me, you know, just because yeah, yeah. it's really shattering and perspective change. Yeah. I mean, uh, so how does, how does the process work of treating these addicts? Like, how do you, if, if, if they, when they come to you, obviously they're broken. How do you kind of not, I guess not put them back together because an addict, an addict is always going to be an addict, but how do you like give them some normalcy to their life? So this is kind of where we're getting into the different theoretical approaches within counseling, which I'm, I'm actually you know, really excited on the inside that you asked this question because I'm, okay. I'm a big, you know, like counseling theory geek as far as it goes. But there's cool. a bunch of different things that um, you can do. Uh, I mean, one of the biggest tried and true ways is uh, the 12 step programs. So we're talking like Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, yeah, I've heard of narcotics. Right. Exactly. So, um, well, I don't I don't necessarily know if any of your listeners would have an idea of what the 12 step program is, but just a basic overview is it is a. It's basically just a regimen for you to identify and admit that you have a problem all the way into, you know, the last few steps, which set you up for your entire life of sobriety. And instead of, you know, and, and you're correct in that a lot of people who have substance use issues and get, and they manage to kick the habit. The one thing that never goes away is their view of themselves that they are always an addict, yeah. you know, and, and that can be beneficial to a lot of people. And that can also be very detrimental to others. Um, some people don't like the whole label, I'm an addict, you know? So for those that enjoy that label, or maybe for those that feel that it's beneficial to them and their recovery, 
uh, they form a new identity and we encourage through the 12 step programs to create an identity around being a sober person. Now, some of the problems with that is that typically, well, I mean, AA and NA is pretty much a group setting and that's not really something that a lot of people benefit from. You know, let's say you're an introvert um, or you're somebody that really just doesn't like crowds or you're ashamed of your addiction. And those are all very real things. Coming into an office with just one person who maybe doesn't fully understand what you're going through, but can help you in a one-on-one -on -one setting, some people benefit from that a little bit more. Another thing is um, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, that's considered the gold standard in the counseling field for um, changing behavior, well, changing maladaptive behavior to uh, some behavior that's, we would call like healthier or maybe a little bit more optimal. Um, CBT is basically centered around the idea that you have these feelings and then you have thoughts that come from these feelings. And then based on that, you have actions, um, disrupting that thought, feeling behavior cycle is really important and being able to break the control that a lot of people feel that addiction has over them. Um, one of the things that people do a lot of like the it's kind of, it kind of sounds silly on its face, but it works for so many people. If you're an alcoholic, instead of a lot of times they might say, I don't know how I relapsed one minute. I was sitting on the, I was sitting on the couch. And then the next minute I just went to the fridge and then I just went blackout drunk. And I have no idea how that happened. Being able to change that and kind of become a little bit more mindful of that process is very yeah. empowering because now they feel like the role is reversed. Now this addiction or this thing doesn't have control over me. I have control over it. What are the main ways you can disrupt that? Again, sounds kind of silly on his face, but putting the big book of AA in the fridge so that when they open the fridge and then they see it, they're like, oh, right, I'm sober and I'm not drinking. Yep. And so they can wind up going about the, that kind of stuff. It, it, anything to kind of help that, help disrupt that just, it's like autopilot in a way, you know, and it's a very sick and twisted one, but it's autopilot nonetheless. And there's, of course, a whole host of other theories out there that counselors use to help. Um, a good counselor, I would say, is one that is able to use a bunch of different theories. Uh, I mean, you know, look at me talking about what a good counselor is. I've only been in the field a couple of years, but, um, but I, I would say that, yeah, I, I mean, any, any counselor that can adapt to his or her situation or the person that's in front of them is one that is going to have a large amount of success. And, you know, if they have, if they have um, benevolent intentions, then they're going to wind up making a positive impact on a lot of people. Okay. Um, now you've been in the, you said you've been in the field uh, a couple of years is I'm, um, what is, is that, do you guys, do you get a lot of help doing it? Like, do you like financially, like, is there, what, what is funding like for it? I, I, uh, I've talked a bit about how, um, when it came to mental health, which is part of the problem of, of the prison system, uh, there's only two hospitals in the state of Missouri, whereas there's 21 prisons, but I don't talk a lot about at, uh, addicts. Now, obviously, like I, I mentioned to you in the DMs, an addict is better in counseling and trying to solve his, you know, trying, trying to get rid of his addiction or trying to solve his addiction rather than putting him in a fucking human warehouse. So like, what, right. what is, uh, you guys get a lot of support? Well, I, I mean, 
I would say initially, no, you know, we don't really get a whole lot of funding. A lot of the stuff that, especially given the population that we work with, um, very rarely considering I, I work in a, I work in a agency that is essentially, um, not funded by, because we are privately funded to, to a certain extent, but a lot of the money that's kind of made by the agency is, is, uh, from government dollars, essentially, you know, things like Medicaid and, uh, state sponsored programs or health insurance programs and things of that nature. And the government obviously does not want to spend a whole lot of money that doesn't involve um, expanding its power over people, right? So it's yeah. not really going to want to spend a whole lot of money on stuff like this. It's going to want to spend more money on stuff like prisons. Yeah. In a lot of ways, I think that the example that you gave about the state of Missouri speaks volumes about the priorities of the government right now in a sense that they're more interested in sticking people in those human warehouses than they are getting people, you know, to be a functioning yeah. individual, you know, a healthy individual. And we're kind of, you know, you're kind of starting, well, at least with Scott Horton, I, I don't think that anybody really says it better than him, especially on things like war and criminal justice reform. I think that's, um, I mean, he's, he's really got it all when it comes to that sort of thing. And yeah, I think that all in all, I think that people are a little bit more, well, people, I say the government is a little bit more interested in keeping people under their thumb just by and large. So yeah, it's that's so kind of the long answer yeah. of it, but no, we, we don't really get a whole lot of funding. And I think that there's mm -hmm. reasons why, because it's the government, you know? Yeah. You get these drug warriors that are uh, super hard on the war on drugs and mm -hmm. expanding power using the war on drugs and keeping the shit out of our fucking, uh, borders but then you know counseling that's the other part to keep them off off shit you know you want to cut off the head of the snake you cut the fucking funding you know and if there's no customers then there's no funding so there's mm -hmm. no reason to come so it's just i don't know man uh, i'm saying the obvious this is a an anarchist show for anarchist <laughs> listeners and i'm talking to an anarchist so you know everyone's gone through the fucking loop already but uh, anything else you'd like to discuss when, uh, concerning uh, counseling, addiction counseling? You know, I, I, think that, I think that counseling justifiably gets a very bad rap, especially because we're, we're, in a lot of ways, we're kind of almost viewed as agents of the state in that way, because okay. especially with the prevalence of, of things like mood stabilizers, SSRIs, psych meds, and, and things of that nature. Okay. Um, I can't imagine there's a lot of us. But there are a good, at least, you know, in, in my experience, I, I can see a few people who are vehemently anti-medication for one reason or another. Um, I'm a big believer that medication, by and large, does not really fix the problem. If you're somebody that has like a chemical imbalance in their brain, then, then yeah, I mean, like that's going to help it. But at the end of the day, I think that it will do more harm than good. And case in point is the opioid, opioid epidemic. You know, yeah. I mean, these pills were out here. I mean, quite literally, it's the example of you have a broken something or other, and then they just give you a pain med to take care of it, hoping that the problem goes away. It doesn't. It's still broken. Right. Absolutely. And I think that in a large part, I think that that could be a pretty good analogy uh, for pretty much everything else that we're kind of experiencing right now, whether you want to get into that politically or if you want to even keep that to the medical field. At the end of the day, there's a big problem, and that problem is very much so embedded throughout a lot of communities. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, right now, uh, the 
pharmacies in my area routinely run out of, so mainly in my clinic, we kind of give out uh, what's called Suboxone strips. And yeah, yeah. Um, Suboxone strips, for anybody that doesn't know, is essentially a, it's just like a, a, they almost look like Listerine, those little Listerine tablets. Yeah. They're not tablets, but like little strips that you would put on your tongue. Except these things, they go, they go under your tongue and it's a delayed release and it, it helps to curb cravings uh, for things like opiates and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, those things yeah, kind of provide you life. with a, yeah, uh, a lot of them, a lot of them will wind up taking it for, at least if it's not their whole life, then it's a, a significant portion of their life. Uh, but a lot of them actually do wind up weaning themselves off of it with obviously, you know, okay. like a doctor's help and things of that nature. Cool. Um, but for a lot of them, man, I, I mean, I, I kind of see the replacement of one addiction with another, not that I think that they're wholesale addicted to Suboxone like they were opiates, but, um, I think that a lot of them kind of view that ritual of taking the Suboxone once in the morning and once at night or once a day is, is a big thing for them. And it's a big confidence booster, but at that, at that point, you know, there, there kind of reaches a point of diminishing returns where it's like, it's time for me to get off some stuff. And I would encourage, you know, anybody, um, that feels as though they might be addicted to something, have a, you know, like I have a taste of sobriety, a taste of truly just having all of that shit out of your system, see what it's like to go four weeks without it and, and kind of gauge where you're at with that. I think that we all have our vices, but, um, I think at the end of it, it's such a difficult thing, obviously, getting and staying sober. But once you kind of have a taste of sobriety, a lot of a lot of people wind up saying, "I don't know why the hell I ever did that in my entire life. It does nothing but you know ruin my it ruined my marriage, it ruined my relationship with my kids, it ruined my life. You know, they got into an accident and they got irreparably hurt from it, or or what have you. A lot of that kind of stuff you wind up seeing, sure, but that sobriety is really, I mean." Mm-hmm what it's about you know what i mean yeah yeah definitely man well i really appreciate you coming on and talking uh i'm really surprised that you haven't talked about this with a lot of people before but again you you said it's because you got got a bad rep uh or counselors got a bad rep but um yeah you want to give your uh your plugs your handles sure thing uh i'm pretty much just on twitter at this point um so that's going to be at Steve, D-E-C-H-I-L-E, at Steve de Chile. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that I just might encourage everybody just before we go, um, I, I really can't uh, push Narcan enough. You know, nar- all first responders have it at this point. I would encourage if you oh, can yeah. get your hands on it, you know, take some, take some with you in your car. You have no idea when you might need it and you might be able to save a life. You know, Narcan is only useful when a person has OD'd to the point where they're going to die. Yeah. Um, if you've had Narcan used on you, it's because you were functionally dead at least. And um, Narcan- it, vi- it violently rips the, the chemicals out of the receptors, right? That's what I was, right. that's how it was described to me. Don't yeah, stand that's... next to the guy after you Narcan him because he'll swing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, think about if you've ever been knocked unconscious, right? Uh, I mean, that's essentially what it's like. You come to and you're incredibly confused. You have no idea where you're at. And uh, a lot of people wind up swinging because, well, I mean, that's the only thing. That's not just doing that, man. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, it's not. Fear. It's, it's yeah, it is a primal fear at that point. Yeah. Man. Well. yeah. Narcan, um, keep it on you. If you can get to it, definitely, obviously get certified in how to administer it. It's a very short thing. Uh, nowadays, it's just a nasal spray. You just take it out of the packaging, insert it into the nose, pump it. Mm-hmm. And they're, if the first one doesn't work, hit them again until you're out, basically, you know. But yeah, but yeah 
And I, this is something I'm very passionate about. I do wish I had more opportunity to uh, talk about it a little bit more just on, on the Twitter sphere and things like that. Cause I think that, you know, we are people that are trying to get as anarchists and libertarians, we're trying to get people out from the, out from under the thumb of government. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the first things that we need to do is obviously get out from under the thumb of a lot of things that we might be addicted to, uh, yeah. whether it's social media or a substance or gambling, anything like that, mm-hmm. get out from under that thumb and you'll be able to apply those lessons anywhere in your life, even including the government. A lot of people mm-hmm. talking about going off the grid, but it's hard. Yeah. If so, you're taking a cocktail full of pills, I mean, good luck, yeah, you're not really going to last very long off the grid anyways, man. You're not I mean, going to make like, it. right not gonna make it ngmi yeah yeah well speaking of which you keep an eye out there for ace dude we uh we want you to make it i'm scared for you yeah i'm actually very scared for myself as well um we'll have to see where this we'll have to see where it goes man i mean you know (laughs) i I just i just spent a a little bit talking about getting out from under the thumb of addiction in the government Uh, we'll see if i can get myself out from under ace's thumb we'll see hell yeah man all right (laughs) All right, Pangy, I'll see you on the group chat, dude. Yep, you take care.